On this episode of The Wharton Current, host Ellie McDonald sits down with Peter McHale, the CEO of Gaia AI. Join us as we talk about Gaia AI's business model, trends in the carbon credit space, specifically surrounding forest carbon credits, and what climate tech startups are looking for from early stage investors. To learn more about Gaia AI, visit their website at gaia-ai.eco. Hi, everyone. This is Ellie McDonald, host of The Wharton Current. I'm excited to be here today with Peter McHale, the CEO of Gaia AI, a startup in the climate tech space. Peter, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role as CEO? Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot for having me, by the way, Ellie. Really appreciate the opportunity. So around 2015, I, I graduated from my undergrad and, and my first master's at, at Carnegie, largely focused at electrical engineering around smart grid tech, right? So I had this really like, you know, save the world energy of like, oh man, I want to work on meaningful problems. I, I, was, I just had like a lot of, a lot of passion around that. But as I started working on smart grid tech and how to pull in renewable resources on it, I realized at the time from hearing utilities talk that so much of the coal tech was getting blocked by a lack of economical energy storage solutions at the time. And they've thankfully come a long way even in the last seven years. But at the time I, I went into the world saying, well, crap, you know, what, what do I want to do? All I know now is I don't want to do that because it, it feels stagnated. I'm not a chemist or a material scientist. And so what do I want to do? And I realized while well, my spare time, I was at Carnegie, I was working in robotics and I just really enjoyed the, the, the meat of it, right? The, the day-to-day um, kind of work around how to build up these kinds of systems and get them to work reliably in the real world. And so I tried to wake my way onto the autonomous vehicle team at Ford. And I loved that day-to-day. The team was amazing. Everyone was so collaborative and kind. The work was like incredibly fun and awesome. The only problem was like, I realized very quickly, I could only understand half the things that, that my team was saying. <laughs> Everything else just sounded like a different language. And so I realized very quickly, oh snap, I, I, I'm missing a foundation here. I'm missing uh, some fundamentals around this tech. So I went back to school and, and luckily Michigan was in my backyard and had a great robotics program. So I, I got a part-time master's in robotics while I, was, while I was working on the the team at Ford. And then they ended up dissolving that team and created Argo AI. And so I went over to Argo as a perception AI engineer. And then from there, I ended up going to an even smaller startup called Main Mobility, um, which was absolutely amazing, awesome culture. Everyone was absolutely brilliant and, and, and super collaborative and kind. But something really interesting happened when I was, when I was at May that all of a sudden, so I finished my, my part-time program at Michigan. And all of a sudden, I had a little bit of space to step back and think, think about everything and stare at it all. And I realized, you know, I, I really do love this robotics and AI tech. When I, I always love to kind of take a step back and say, you know, it's, I see it as the digital revolution of the last 100 years becoming physically manifest in the world. And, and, and when you say it in that super melodramatic way, right, all of a sudden your imagination runs wild with what kind of positive damage this can do, right? Where can we aim this thing? But when you look at the current state of things, the great majority of it, as far as talent and capital is being applied to frankly, minimizing Uber's unit economics. And again, maybe it's a hot take, maybe it's not, but I really think we have some incredibly meaningful and important problems in, in our century, right? Millennials and Gen Z's have a hell of a time set up for us. <laughs> and so I, I really want to try to find out what is a good problem to aim this at. Really, that's the heart and soul of Gaia, right? Is, is we want to try to aim that awesome weapon on at fighting climate change by supporting nature and, and supporting forests. Yeah, I totally hear you in regards to going back to school, filling knowledge gaps and, and finding things that inspire you. I think a lot of my Wharton classmates can agree on that point. 
And I, I think your answer kind of leads us into the next question. I personally first found out about Gaia AI through your work with Greentown Labs, which for our listeners is a climate tech startup incubator in Boston. And I thought your business concept was really fascinating. So would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your company? Maybe walk us through your company's thesis and where you fit into the marketplace more broadly. Yeah, yeah. More than happy to kind of dive into to Gaia. So the broader theme that you kind of see around Gaia is, is a common one, right? It, it, it's similar to a lot of other companies that you see out there, which is focusing on the verification of these force-based carbon credits, really trying to create uh, a trust, right? Around these kinds of credits that, that they're high quality, which means that they actually do, do something, right? They actually do represent one ton of carbon that was sequestered, that was additive and, you know, no leakage, per, more permanent, right? Like impact, these kinds of qualities, but even more than that, a lot of the competition that we see honestly tries to apply either one hammer solution, right? With machine learning on, on satellite imagery, which is great. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's an amazing and, and really cool thing. But it's incredibly good in some ways and incredibly, incredibly limited and, and terrible in others. And so this is kind of a, you know, a cliche or a wisdom in robotics that, you know, a car does not drive itself off of LIDAR. It doesn't drive itself off of a camera. It doesn't drive itself off of radar. It's really about the fusion of the, the three combined and what you're able to tell about the world because you're using each modality to overcompensate for the other's um, weaknesses. And so really that's our kind of approach, right? We say, okay, what is the problem around verification? And and, and measurements of force. And then how do we apply the right technology at the right time at the right place? So that we're, we're maximizing the scalability, we're minimizing the cost, but at the same time, we're actually getting good results, right? Like let's not just go for the, the crappier, um, terrible result solution that barely costs anything. It doesn't matter if it doesn't cost anything, if it doesn't work. So that's, that's one big difference is, is the technology, right? We believe in a low canopy with, uh, with LIDAR and camera combined with above canopy with a drone collecting measurements from on heights of the trees combined with satellite. It's not a bet on any one of those technologies, but it's also not a bet against any one of those technologies. And so really it's about using them where they make sense. The last thing that, that really is kind of core to our DNA and, and who we are, what we do, which is honestly very different from almost pretty much all the other players out there is that we are plugging directly into timber, right? So, so timber is at the heart and soul of this whole space of, of conservation of, of forestry, right? And, and a lot of other players are kind of like sitting on top of it or, or, or not directly addressing the needs or views of, of the timber industry. What we want to do is actually plug directly in from the bottom up to support them in their day-to-day -day operations and what they're doing with this exact same technology. And then by plugging in with them, we can offer this as an asset, as a, a value, an additive value to timber industry as a new revenue stream, right? From, from conservation credits while actually having the kind of data that we need to truly solve these problems, to have these credits be truly additive. Right. And, and then to, to actually have the credits do what they need to. So that's kind of our spin. And it's a, a bit different from a lot of the other stuff you see out there. Yeah. I think to your point, being able to fit yourself into someone's, you know, value stack as an additive source of income is great. And just for our listeners who might not be as familiar with LIDAR, would you mind just giving us a little bit of high level? definitions of, of LIDAR and any of the other techs that you think are worth explaining? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So LIDAR, if you've ever seen a uh, James Bond films where they put like laser on the back of a shark, you know, and, and have that, that's pretty <laughs> much what LIDAR is, right? It's, it's just a, a laser beam, except it's, it's eye safe. You know, it's, it's not going to cut anyone in half. It's not even going to arm your eye, but it, it's pretty much just a, a camera's work as a, a flat 2d matrix of pixels, right? And we're all pretty familiar with 
with what those look like, right? If you keep zooming into an image, you always see that kind of pixelated view and you get a strong sense for, for what that data really looks like. LiDAR is fundamentally different kind of modality. And so instead of getting a flat 2D realm of a uh, matrix of, of information, you actually get a, a collection of points on the world based on exactly where they are in 3D space. Um, so you don't know the color of the thing. You don't really see it kind of like our eyes see it. You see it in a very different way as, as uh, again, it's called a point cloud, but um, kind of a 3D array of, of points that give you the distance of things. And so in robotics, when we need to know geometric measurements, such as in this space, they call DBH, diameter breast height, if you walk up to a tree and hug it, you know, what, what is that width at, at that height, one and a half meters off the ground. And so that, or the height of the tree, these kinds of things, LIDAR is amazing for, because it, it directly measures the, the geometry of the tree. Besides that, the, the core technologies are, are, you know, camera, GPS, those are, we're, we're pretty familiar with, and then satellites, which, which are also pretty intuitive. And then drones, you know, which again, I think a, a lot of people are, are familiar with. We start with a drone quadrator because it's, it's a lot better for early on prototyping, but also for making sure that we can get the right spec on, on the measurements that we're collecting from above. Awesome. Thank you for, for diving into that. So going off of, you know, your thesis and how you positioned yourself in the marketplace, what do you see as the main challenges holding back the space in general of forest carbon credits? Yeah. Oh man, I love this question. <laughs> and so really it's, it's, I, I really see these three different waves happening, right? And so one wave was like a year or two or three ago, right? It's, it's the last few years where people all of a sudden said, Hey, this, this carbon credit thing is interesting, but you know, we, we need precision here. We need to make sure that they're, they're precisely accounted for and measured. And so this whole direct measuring with high accuracy thesis started picking up, right? You see some early startups around that space and thesis as well. And then on top of that though, now that the current wave that you're seeing specifically around forestry is the, they call it the baseline models, right? So like I was saying before, the, the great majority of forest carbon credits, they're, they're really based on timber, right? They're, they're actually conservation credits, meaning they're not going to cut down a tree that they would have cut down in a world where you didn't pay them, right? That credit means that they're now saving that tree. In order to know that that's truly additive and that that credit really is a, a new ton of carbon that stays in the ground that wouldn't have been otherwise, you need to know confidently what they would have cut if you didn't pay them. And so how do you figure that one out? It might sound simple, but it's actually a really hard problem to figure out. People try to regress this out to, to, to try to like pattern match based on what, you know, the companies have, have cut in the past. That approach has terrible accuracy and anyone who, who uses that approach doesn't actually publicly reveal their accuracy for exactly that reason. And if anyone ever says, uh, oh, we don't know that number, I haven't talked to the engineers about it in a while, it's because that number is terrible, right? If it, if it wasn't a terrible yeah. number, then they, they would know the number <laughs> and they would, then they would be saying it to the high heavens. That's a, you know, one approach. So really what we believe in order to solve that problem that everyone's currently talking about around these baseline models, we believe you really need to plug into timber, right? To know their harvesting schedules and to, to really know their operations and be finely in tune with it so that you, you there's, there's no trust needed. There's no um, estimation or regression. It's just, you, you know, it because you're, you're staring at it. That's, that's the current problem that the next problem, the third wave that is coming and, and people aren't really talking about too much unless you talk to timber, right? And if you talk to timber, it's the first thing they talk about. They love to talk about it and they want people to be talking about it more, which is in the current way of, of doing forestry, a lot of it is sustainable. And what that means is when they cut down a tree, two things happen. First of all, they plant another tree, right? And so after that tree reached its curve on growth and it started really slowing down on how much it was sequestering down carbon, they plant a new tree that then goes on its own growth curve that sequesters that much more carbon. But the second thing that happens is that that tree that they cut down 
they don't typically burn it and, and put it into the world. There are some applications of the wood that do that, but a lot of timber is not that. A lot of timber is construction or, or, or furniture and, and different uses of wood products like this that are actually a type of carbon storage, right? And, and so the point with all of this is that in order to really solve this problem, you need to not just compare with this a carbon accounting as if when you cut down a tree, that carbon goes into the, into the atmosphere because it, it doesn't. You actually need to study the system dynamics. And that's, that's the right word for this, right? It's system dynamics of how the carbon is flowing in the business as usual world and in the timber industry. You need to appreciate that. And then you need to offer the right incentives to give them a nudge, the right economic money incentive, right? To give them a nudge to optimize for not just a timber product, but also for carbon sequestration. Um, and if you do that, if you figure that one out, it's a win-win for everyone. The, the credits are truly additive um, and they get a new revenue stream. It sounds like it's a complicated industry that often gets simplified by people in the carpet credit space. So it's really interesting to see you kind of break down those three waves as you describe them. And jumping off of that and, and talking about larger space challenges, I'd love to ask you about your specific challenges at Gaia AI. You know, we know the climate tech space is impacted by a multitude of geopolitical, technological, and financial trends. So what do you think are the biggest headwinds and tailwinds your company specifically is facing? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of like a broader answer to this and a zoomed in, and I'll, I'll kind of talk very briefly about both the, the broader answer about the more geopolitical like context of it all. And so we stare at what's happening right now, right? And venture capital and all these kinds of capital flows, they often follow patterns, right? And they're, they're hype patterns. <laughs> and so often everyone's like excited to jump on the next big thing because there's signs of it. And then, you know, it starts to saturate out and mature out. They realize, oh, it's not the, the saving grace of the category or vertical is kind of saturated out. And then you see this kind of decline, right? And so, and then there's other dynamics as well that we've seen in the past, you know, clean tech bubble 1.0. I'm scared as heck that this cannot be clean tech bubble 2.0, right? And as a matter of fact, we don't even call it clean tech, right? We call it climate tech because clean tech now has such a stigma to it. <laughs> and so it's right. the exact same thing, but yeah. <laughs> but so point being like, we, we cannot afford to have this be a bubble. So the biggest headwind that I have and that what I'm scared of is how serious are we about this, right? How serious are we not as a point of, of, of hype, but as a point of, you know, we need to solve this problem and this needs to be an exponential curve, not, not a normal curve. Um, and then the tailwind on the, the broader scale is that hype, right? Is, is the fact that there's so much capital flowing and that this is a hot topic right now that makes a lot of things a lot easier, right? It means that I have access to capital, but again, like even that word is wrong, right? Again, it can't be hype. We cannot afford for this to be hype. It needs to be this continuous exponential curve where we need to solve this problem. Please let my kids' generation have a good life, right? And so we we really need to solve this problem. On Zoomed In, really like the, the biggest like hail, headwind and tailwind as, as a combo that we have as a company is like, this is true deep tech, right? Like that, you know, coming out of MIT, Carnegie Mellon, University of Michigan, like coming out of autonomous vehicle tech stacks, you know, our lead roboticist is an MIT uh, PhD, literally pushing the envelope on what this kind of tech can really do. We're staring right at that, that frontier and, and, and we're not trying to do an R and D thing here, right? We're trying to apply some really, really strong right at the edge tech. But with that being the case, it, with it being true deep tech, it means we, we really need a, a strong machinery going on here, right? We need capital. We need, we need strong talent. And so really I'm just trying to shove anything I can into that machine to get that aggressive growth curve going. Um, and so we need capital and we, we need, we need strong talent. That's, that's really kind of the, the headwind and tailwind in one for guys specifically. I think, you know, going off of that, we are seeing a lot of capital 
to your point, maybe it's hype. Hopefully it's not. But we are seeing a lot of capital interested in the climate space these days. And as an early stage climate tech startup, what are your priorities when you go to the market for capital? What are you looking for? Oh, sorry. Oh, man, I, I love all these questions, Ellie. These are <laughs> these are honestly really good. Um, so honestly, the, the the biggest thing by and large, again, in my obsession day and night, literally what I dream of is this growth curve, right? Is, is you, you ever write on what's it called? Uh, man, it's a German expression. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 where he basically in the book, he basically just yells at you the whole time. You should be going fast, you know, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's pretty much, um, um, exactly what we're, we're constantly thinking about is how do we fuel this growth curve? And to that point, every time that I'm looking for capital, I'm really trying to figure out who's that person, who's that partner, um, that is the right match that is going to just push us so aggressively far, right. In whatever capacity we need. So for example, our first investor, SOSV and, and hacks, they're freaking amazing. And they were a perfect fit at exactly the right time. They throw us engineering resources and engineers are very energetic. They're absolutely brilliant. They have expertise and domain knowledge around exactly these kinds of things that we need to solve on the hardware part here. As they're all of a sudden accelerating that like crazy, which is amazing. But also the, the, the partners that, that I talked to there, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of mentorship around Harvard, MIT, all these different kinds of climate tech um, ecosystems. And honestly, the, the partners there have insights around the space and, and, and advice that are, are top notch. Right. And so, so they've just been, it, it's, it's, it's no fluff, right. It's no BS. And that's exactly what we needed. We need to continue that. Right. So, so when I look at trying to find capital for the next wave, I'm really trying to strongly consider who's that partner, right. Who's that relationship that, that is going to really help us accelerate Gaia and bring besides, um, capital in the right context, also to be able to set us up, um, in the right way to, to just go very, very fast. Got it. So it sounds like if someone's trying to differentiate themselves as an investor, having that strategic insight and a network of people in the industry and that have their, their finger on, you know, deep tech and, and tech and carbon credits more broadly can help you stand out. Yep. Yep. And, and especially like another part of this is really we, who we're looking for next is someone who will really um, be in the ring with us. And what I mean by that is that they really see what we see here. Right. And, and they're, they're truly like behind us and, and supporting us in, in that respect. Awesome. So the next question on my mind is a little bit more macro. We saw a ton of private sector companies make climate pledges this year, COP26. So do you think that these pledges are going to make an impact? And how do you expect increasing climate pledges from private sector companies to impact the use of carbon offset credits and their importance? Yeah. Yeah. So really interesting dynamics that are going on. Right. So let me zoom out for, for a quick second to, to answer this question, right? Like everything that, that we're talking about, right. With these, these pledges, these are pretty much all in the context of what's called the voluntary carbon credit market. And this means that companies by their own volition are deciding to, to buy offsets. Right. And, and you see some, you see some silly things going on with that, right. You see some companies saying, well, we have a, a about a gazillion and one, um, carbon, you know, tons of carbon that we emit a year. So we're going to try to purchase the cheapest gazillion and one credits that we can in the marketplace, right? At the worst end of the spectrum, that's, that's what you see. On the best end of the spectrum, you see players like Stripe and now a lot of people following behind them, which are saying, okay, we have a certain budget and it's, it's a nice budget, but it's, it's a budget. And instead of trying to buy X amount of credits, let's try to buy the most impacting and meaningful credits, right? So maybe that involves more risk, right? With earlier on companies that are really trying to solve real problems. Um, but really they're trying to tackle that quality. Right of of carbon of credits that truly do something and help solve this problem. So so very interesting dynamics that you see going on. But on the one end, you see kind of companies that are 
trying to offset their entire emissions with cheap credits and it doesn't work, right? It, it, a lot of the discussions that are being had around this are around the, to solve this right, you know, a, a huge amount of the emissions need to be reduced. A huge amount, the great majority, 80, no, I think, sorry, I think the numbers that were talked about were 90 to 95%, right? Over, over a short amount of time. But that last five to 10% is still a lot. And that needs to be sequestered in order to bring us down to true zero or negative. That's where sequestration is such a fundamental part of the solution. So how people talk about these offsets right now with offsetting all of the emissions, it's not real. It's, it's not, it's not a real solution. It's not, it, it could in some sense, like push off real solutions for, for reducing emissions, but it's important for us to mature this technology because it's going to be a really important part of the overall, the overall solution. That's, that's a lot of the, the kind of like answer there, but again, zooming out. All of this in the, is in the context of what's called the voluntary carbon credit market. If you look at things like NROADS, which is a, a, a system dynamics model around, around climate change coming out of John Sturman at MIT, and it, amazing, amazing uh, model, but you can kind of tune all these knobs, right? And play around with it. Highly recommended to anyone interested in climate change. Look at the NROADS climate change model, and, and you can tune all these knobs and say, oh, what if we invest more in sustainable resources or more in, you know, X or Y solutions? And by and large, the one knob that just nukes so much and gets everything else to fit into place is a carbon tax. And it's not that complicated, right? It makes a lot of sense. You need to aim greed at this problem. And the way to do that is cap and trade. And so as soon as you start talking about cap and trade, that's a compliance market. That's where offsets are a huge part of it. And you can look at Europe to, and, and, and certain states in the U.S. that are starting to adopt this to see what that starts to look like. That's the huge tailwind, right? So, so voluntary is great. It's really preliminary. To, to what inevitably necessarily has to happen with, with the compliance uh, cap and trade. A question that springs to mind following your answer, and this is just me being curious of your take. We've seen a huge range of predictions when it comes to the true cost of carbon and carbon taxes. And in Europe, that cost is significantly higher than a lot of U.S. assessments. So what do you think the true cost of carbon, the carbon tax cost are going to be in the near future and why? That's a really interesting question. Uh, there, uh, it, it's different on even within forestry, right? You see within voluntary um, marketplaces, the price typically ranges between four to $6 a ton and compliance all of a sudden it's around 14, $16, right? Uh, you see players like um, Pachama actually calling for over $20 per ton. And so you, again, you, you kind of see that, that call to, you know, if we're trying to solve real problems, then you can sell at a premium. You see early signs of that, but, but really I, I think, so it's, it's all over the place right now, by the way, these numbers are all because forestry is scalable. It's natural. It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's it literally nature has been bio-optimized for hundreds of millions of years to do exactly this problem of sequestering carbon down into soil and biomass. It's freaking beautiful. And, and nature has engineered the heck out of this problem way better than we have. But, but point being, then you look at, I never want to root against any one solution. God knows we need everything we can. But when you look at, you know, human-made solutions for, for sequestering down artificial solutions, they, they are uh, typically over a hundred bucks, right? And so again, prices are just all over the place. It's hard to really squint at that and see where it converges to. But what I imagine is going to happen longer term, right? Like right now there's a weird kind of capitalism taking place, but, but I think longer term, this is actually going to be a place for government, right? As, as we really start to feel hurricanes and droughts and, and we're like, oh snap, you know, like this, this is important. Oh man, I, I now feel this. And we should really actually take this way more seriously than we even were. As soon as that happens, I think all of a sudden everyone's going to be on in line for, okay, yeah, let's, let's raise that price. 
right? Let's tune that knob and say, you know, companies have to pay that much more of a tax. And now the value of carbon has, uh, has truly increased, right? I, I think that's going to be the dynamic that that takes out. And I think that number is going to be increasing, right? And technologies might be improving, but that situation is stark, right? It, it's, it's bad. And so like, I, I think that the incentive is going to have to necessarily increase. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. I have had conversations with investment professionals for the last couple of years about what carbon tax number we put in our models for future investments and for future cash flows. So I, I personally agree with you that that number is going to go up and I hope it does because I think it's going to incentivize change. To, to kind of circle back to the compliance market, who do you think will win in the compliance market going forward? Yeah, yeah. So very different dynamics that are going on between voluntary and compliance. And voluntary, typically you're trying to get a company to buy your credits, right? And so it comes down to whatever team they have. And so you kind of get a lot of darts to throw. You know, you, you oh, maybe I can get Microsoft to get excited about this, or maybe I can get Amazon, or maybe I can get Stripe, you know? And so you, you can kind of try a lot and, and every team is made up of humans. And, you know, and so like, you know, they're, and they're all trying to squint at the future and squint at, you know, a lot of the grounded details here and try to figure out what's real and, and, and what's quality. But I think in the case of compliance, it's very different, right? Typically it's experts forming some sort of panel that are called in and, and coming from industry, coming from universities, coming from all over and trying to come up um, with a, a set policy. Right. And, and so when they do that, they don't have the same um, incentive as a lot of companies of, Hey, I just want to offset and have good PR. No, they're, they're staring at this as saying, we're trying to fight climate change. And, and what does that mean? Right. What, what are the real problems here? And how do we make this be as real as possible? So that we're truly sequestering down tons of carbon. And so point being with all of this, right. It's, it's, I, I, I don't think there's too much rocket science to anything that's going on in, in a way, right. When, so you, you, instead of, of trying to predict how all things shake out. Gaia has a very strong and simple stance, which is let's solve real problems in real ways. And that gives us conviction that as all this complexity shakes out, that, that we'll be able to win. I think the players that solve real problems and are able to do it in scalable and, and, and more affordable ways, those are going to be the players that settle in as the, the, the policies get set. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Current. This has been a really exciting and informative conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. But before we head out, did you have anything you wanted to plug with our listeners, your company's website, socials, or perhaps a newsletter? Yeah, yeah. So please, you know, feel free to find us and, and follow us on LinkedIn, Gaia AI. Also, our website is um, Gaia-AI.eco. So G-A-I-A-I.eco. Do I know my own company's name? That's, that's, but that website is, is very minimal right now. It's been kind of like a stealth mode website. We're in the middle of redoing it with a few designers. So hopefully there'll be, you know, more to see in, in a month or two. But really the biggest thing that I, I'd love to plug is, is recruiting. Again, like we're obsessed on this growth curve. We're very excited and passionate about what we're doing here. We think it's, it's really meaningful. I, I mean it when I say we are working with some of the most advanced technologies that, that we've made so far as a people. And so it's an exciting thing that we're doing here. But we need strong talent, especially around software engineering and, and robotics and UX designers. Um, and so anyone listening to this, if anyone comes to mind that you want to throw our way or, or refer or, or you yourself, please, please, we, we, we really need a strong talent. Awesome. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm sure that of our listener base, you'll, you'll probably get some emails coming through. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Peter. We really appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ellie. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Wharton Current. If you're interested in learning more about Gaia AI, their website is gaia-ai.eco. We'd also like to thank Peter McHale for joining us on this podcast and providing us with his insight. We hope all of you join in next episode.